This is the Monday, December 21st, 2015 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. You can also catch us on iTunes, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, the Tangent Bound Network. You get the idea. We're everywhere. You can even listen to us in the dashboard of many new model cars, where you can get iHeartRadio, just like you get any other radio. But of course, today, we're not in a car or a truck. Our time machine is a chariot. A tu brute, beware the Ides of March. Julius Caesar's slaying over 2,000 years ago has transcended fact and attained the status of legend. But as our next guest often has to remind people, it really did happen. Caesar was a real human being, flesh and blood, and that blood really was spilled. Our guest is Barry Strauss and his book is titled, The Death of Caesar, The Story of History's Most Famous Assassination. Until I picked up a copy of Death of Caesar, I didn't realize how much Shakespeare's play had distorted the historical record and my own view of the facts. That far from being an act of amateurs with high ideals, Caesar's officers had planned his murder down to the last detail. And just who's this Decimus guy I keep reading about in the Death of Caesar? Edited out of Shakespeare's play, Decimus was a third cog in the conspiracy with Cassius and Brutus. But we didn't meet him in 10th grade English class. We didn't meet him until we read The Death of Caesar. Well, now that we've set the table for our Bacchanal, let's climb into our chariot and race off to the mid-March 44 BC rendezvous with destiny. It's a time of treason and murder, with a familiar voice here on the History Author Show to interview the author of the week. Hello, my name is Stephen Bedford, and I'm doing my best Dean Carianis impression, and I am seated here today with the Bryce and Edith Omar Professor in Humanistic Studies and the Chair of the Department of History at Cornell University, Barry Strauss. Barry is also the author of several books in the classic era, such as The Battle of Salamis, The Trojan War, The Spartacus War, and most recently, The Death of Caesar. Uh, you can learn more at barrystrauss.com and find him on Twitter at Barry Strauss. Barry, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Stephen. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I think we will dive right into The Death of Caesar. And of course, this is probably the world and history's most famous assassination but there's so much backstory here. I think so many people jump right to the sword swinging in the Senate chamber and the blood rolling in the streets. But really, there were a lot of cracks in the foundation building up to this. And it's something that I think the book lays out so well is sort of the pre and post of the actual assassination. So if you could fire up the time machine and take us back to Caesar's Rome in the months and weeks leading up to that fateful day. 
happy to. The Roman Republic, on the eve of the assassination of Caesar, was on the ropes. The Republic had been seething in turmoil on and off for over a century, or excuse me, nearly a century by the time of the assassination. It had seen a series of riots, revolts, rebellions, revolutions, perhaps uh, most distressingly a civil war in the 80s BC, which led to a dictatorship under Sulla. This is a dictatorship that tried to set the clock, or if you prefer, the water clock back, and to confirm an oligarchy in control of the republic. Sulla lasted as dictator only two years, then he retired and died, perhaps because he was ill, and his constitution began to unravel over the following decades. And it was clear by the middle of the first century BC that the real power in Rome lay not with the Senate or the people, but rather with the series of warlords and their armies. First Pompey and then Caesar. And Caesar, in fact, went to the point of fighting a civil war. Pompey, at that point, had decided to support the Senate. And Caesar led his armies against the armies of Pompey and the Senate. And in a series of battles that stretched out between 49 and 45 BC, Caesar defeated them all and finally became the most powerful person in the Roman state. And just how he was going to put the pieces back together again and what the Roman Republic under Caesar's domination would mean, that was the big question facing Rome in the months before his assassination. Curious to back up a little bit, and how did one in that era become a warlord? Well, there, there wasn't a box that you checked <laughs> as a young Roman saying, I want to be a warlord. Yes, there's no career counseling there's for, no for career that line counseling. of war. There's no real career counseling. There were three men in Caesar's generation who aspire to this position. Caesar and Pompey are the most famous, and they were the ones who faced off in the Civil War. But there had been a third one named Crassus, and Caesar and Pompey and Crassus had an unofficial domination of the Roman state called, well, scholars call it the first triumvirate, these three men, the triumvirs, not officially triumvirs, but unofficially, they dominated Rome. And each of them had a combination of military and political power, financial power as well. Pompey had had a very successful career as a general in Spain and in the East, and he'd added a lot of territory to Rome with conquests in the East. Crassus, not as successful, though he had a base in Spain as well, and he went off in the 50s BC to try to conquer new land for Rome in the East. He went to war against the empire that ruled Iran at the time, known as the Parthians, and he suffered an utter and total defeat at the Battle of Carrhae, which is located nowadays in, in what is modern Turkey. His army was defeated, almost destroyed. He himself was killed, and this was considered a great stain on Roman honor. But how did they get to be warlords? They had to rise up. If you came from a prominent family, then around the age of 18, you would apprentice yourself to a Roman general, to his staff, try to learn the trade, to rise up yourself, to be elected to a military office, to win distinction on the battlefield. Caesar, for instance, won Rome's second highest decoration when he was 20, and to acquire a command. To acquire an important command, you had to hold political office as well. So it's a matter of being connected. It's a matter of having skills, persuading people that you were the man, winning elections, and then being rewarded with an important military command. You would then 
go on to win victories that won you the support of the troops. And then, most important of all, you had to bring home the gravy for the troops in terms of bonuses and rewards at home. The spoils of war. The spoils of war. The spoils of war. Some of them were to be won on the battlefield, but others of them could only be granted politically by the Senate or the people back in Rome. And that's the hardest part of being a successful warlord. You had to reward your men, or otherwise they would not be loyal to you. Sentiment didn't cut it, neither for the soldiers or the generals. It was a matter, indeed, of business, of getting them land and money. We're not fighting for compliments back in that day. (laughs) We're not fighting for compliments. uh, Hard goods and all that comes with it. So Caesar rose to the top of triumvirate and passed that into Rome. And why was the Senate so fearful of his dominance, of his prowess? Was it because of his leadership and skills at the battlefield? Was it the political trajectory he was planning to take Rome? Two things frightened the Senate. First of all, by conquering Gaul, Caesar became Rome's most successful general that had the best veteran army, But also he became Rome's richest man because Gaul was a tremendously wealthy place and Caesar now pocketed, as it were, that wealth. But Caesar had a track record as a politician. Before going off to Gaul, he had been consul, so held the highest office in the Roman state, which was an annual position. Although he himself was a member of the aristocracy, Caesar was a supporter of the common man. And as consul, he had passed a series of measures that alarmed the conservatives. They saw Caesar as somebody who would upset their apple cart, who would upset their financial power and their political power. He'd also behaved in a series of unconstitutional and even violent manners. And they worried that now that he had the wind in his sails after Gaul, Once he came back to Rome, there would be no stopping him from becoming the single most dominant politician in Rome. So is it fair to say that maybe there was fear of him being too much of a person of the people, a leader of the people, and thus jeopardizing that ruling class as well as possibly some signs of total dictatorship? It's fair to say that, but let me just add one point to it. Roman politics at the top was a matter of a series of competing aristocratic families. And they were happiest when each family could have a piece of the pie. Mm -hmm. What worried them about Caesar was they thought that he would monopolize that pie and pour all the spoils into his own family. Now, with the actual plotting of the murder, this was not an overnight caper. This was something that had been planned and thought about for some time. Yes, for a month or several months. And we know that even before this, some of the assassins had talked about the murder as early as the summer before. It was percolating. So they thought about it. And events over the winter of 45-44 BC convinced them that they'd had enough Mm -hmm. and now is the time to strike. And who were some of the earliest rabble-rousers? Who were the ones really starting to put this idea in other people's ears and sort of lead the charge on the plot? Well, the first assassin that we know of, at least in the winter of 44 BC, was Cassius. Cassius was a prominent general and politician. He had opposed Caesar in the Civil War. He'd supported Pompey. Uh, Then when Pompey lost and was killed and it was clear that the tide was turning in Caesar's favor, 
Cassius decided to make his peace with Caesar, accept Caesar's pardon, and go over to his side. But he was disturbed by what he saw happen when Caesar returned to Rome, and he thought both that Caesar was becoming too powerful and that he, Cassius, was losing a piece of power, and so he decided to stir up the conspiracy. He talked to his brother-in-law, Marcus Brutus, who is one of the most famous men in Rome, Mm -hmm. not a general, not a military man, but a politician, orator, philosopher, man of the world, came from a very distinguished old Roman noble family, had a lot of prestige in Rome, and Cassius thought it was very important to get Brutus on his side. They turned to a third man, a distant cousin of Marcus Brutus named Decimus Brutus. Let's call him Decimus. Decimus, unlike Brutus and Cassius, had always been a supporter of Caesar. He'd been Caesar's admiral in the conquest of Gaul, then an admiral again for Caesar in the Civil War. Then he had served as governor for Caesar in Caesar's absence. He had governed Gaul. He'd proven himself militarily. He's someone who had very, very high expectations of what he wanted, and he too began to realize that Caesar was in it for Caesar and was not going to leave enough for Decimus to get the honor and power that he felt he deserved. Decimus, I think, is one of the characters that really you shed the light on in the death of Caesar. He is someone who, for whatever reason, has been written out of a lot of the other books. He's really not even a player in the famous Shakespeare play. So how does someone so vital to this historic act, this murderous plot, get sort of swept off the page? Yes, Decimus is one of the characters who I had the most fun with in writing The Death of Caesar. It is extraordinary how little attention has been paid to him. And I think the reason for this is twofold. First, the most famous ancient source about the assassination, Plutarch's Lives, gives Decimus short shrift. Plutarch was a fan of Marcus Brutus. Plutarch himself was a philosopher. He admired Brutus and all that had been written about him. And he says that Decimus was a minor player. But Plutarch was wrong. Plutarch's living and writing 150 years after the assassination. There are other earlier sources that make it clear that Decimus was playing a central role. Most important of these is a book that often has been overlooked. It's a life of Augustus Caesar, written by a man named Nicholas of Damascus. Nicholas was a scholar and a public figure in the life of Augustus. He ended up as Augustus's secretary. Many scholars have tended to poo-poo his book because they think it's giving us Augustus's version of the events, and it's not fair and objective. Nicholas has been reevaluated by scholars on both sides of the Atlantic in the last 30 years, and it's clear that he needs to be taken more seriously, and he is a more important writer than that. And in Nicholas, Decimus's role comes to the fore. There are other sources, Cicero, contemporary source, who gives Decimus a major role, and there's some other writers as well. So I think it's a matter of going beyond the picture we get from Plutarch and indeed the picture we get from Shakespeare. Shakespeare misnames Decimus. He calls him Decius, and he makes him a minor player in the assassination. But that's quite wrong. Decimus played a more important role. What a snub. (laughs) Yeah, what a snub. Well, I'm glad that in the death of Caesar, I've had a chance to recreate, if you will, the life of Decimus. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, when Decimus and the others are starting to 
make their move? Was there resistance amongst their peers? And what would they do had there been a resistance? I guess what I'm trying to get at is, how did the plot never get foiled? How did someone never go to Caesar and say, hey, these guys are talking some stuff here, you better watch out? Well, it was a very tricky business indeed to have a secure and safe conspiracy. We know that the conspirators were very cautious about who they invited to join them. They would sound people out very circumspectly before they invited them to join. We also know that they never gathered all the conspirators together. They only met in separate groups, and they tried to choose people who they felt had something to lose. We must also assume that they waited till rather late in the day to get most people to join, because the longer the conspiracy was brewing, the greater the danger of it being revealed. Two other factors. One, it almost was revealed. On the day of the assassination itself, Caesar almost found out what was going on, so time was running out for the conspirators. Two, they had one thing in their favor, and that is that Caesar's attitude towards conspiracies was all wrong. Caesar got a lot of noise. He constantly heard about conspiracies against him, and he had come to ignore these reports because nothing ever came of them. So that helped the conspirators. The other thing that helped the conspirators is that Caesar had a very high opinion of himself. He had risen to the top by breaking the rules, Mm -hmm. by making his own rules. And he felt, I believe, that he didn't have to pay attention to these annoying little rumors because he was above all this. He was the man who made the rules. And finally, he said that it would be irrational to kill him because killing him would only bring the Civil War back again. It would unravel the peace that was so fragile in Rome. And who would be crazy enough to do that? So Caesar had a dysfunctional sense of security that really helped the conspirators. So it was really a a sense of hubris that may have led to his ultimate undoing. Yes, it is a classic case of hubris. The death of Caesar has hubris written all over. (laughs) And of course, history tells us that the assassination and the plot behind it ultimately backfired. Yes, the assassination was successful in killing Caesar, but it was not successful in putting the conspirators in power. Now, we all know from Shakespeare's play that there was a famous funeral, probably five days after the assassination, in which Antony gave one of the most tide-turning funeral orations in history, if not the single most pivotal funeral oration in history. The famous friends, Romans, countrymen speech, he never said those three words, nor did he use the immortal phrase, honorable men. But he did stir up the crowd that led to a riot that burned Caesar's body on the Roman Forum and that made the assassins fear for their lives. That, however, was not the key turning point as far as I'm concerned. The key turning point came earlier, and the key mistakes that the assassins made after the death of Caesar came earlier. After the assassination, they marched and occupied the Capitoline Hill, which was the most sacred and secure ground in the heart of Rome. And one of the things they had going for them is that they had a troop of gladiators that were there to serve as bodyguards. And it was not unusual in this period of history to have gladiators double as bodyguards. There was no police force in Rome at this time. There, from the Capitoline Hill, they spoke to the crowds below. And there they got a fair amount of support. In fact, Caesar had been unpopular in Rome. There were many people that thought that Caesar was going too far, grabbing too much power for one person. All Romans had a suspicion of 
monarchy and a suspicion of anyone who called himself dictator for life, as Caesar did. The mistake that the conspirators made had to do with the soldiers. Both Caesar's veterans, who were in Rome expecting to accompany Caesar to the lands he was giving them, and active duty soldiers, who were also on the edge of Rome. These were men who had followed Caesar because, as I said, he brought them wealth. He brought them cash and was promising them land. What they wanted to hear from the conspirators was that the conspirators were going to give them something more. The conspirators, and having killed their boss, would reward them by upping the ante. Instead, what the conspirators said is, we promise not to take anything away from you. Everything Caesar gave you, we'll give you as well. That wasn't enough. They had changed the terms of the game. They had made it a riskier game, Mm -hmm. and they needed to show that the men were going to have something to show for that. So they really had no incentive to offer these troops after carrying out the conspiracy. They had no incentive to offer. We killed your champion. We killed the man who gave you everything. And you should join us because we won't hurt you. Mm -hmm. That's not good enough. No, (laughs) not for soldiers who had been all over the world at that point. Yeah. Of course, that's not good enough for soldiers who'd been marching all over the world and returning with fat pockets and treasure chests and so on and lands and titles. Exactly. If you're one of those soldiers, you're going to look around and say, so who is the guy who is going to guarantee everything that Caesar gave me? Mm. And in fact, within months, if not weeks, two guys emerge as the ones who will help them. One is Mark Antony, one of Caesar's closest colleagues and a successful general in his own right. And the other is the very unusual person who Caesar's will adopts as his heir and adopts as his son. And that's a man named Gaius Octavius, sometimes known as Octavian, who's only 18. He wasn't in Rome at the time of the assassination. He was on the other side of the Adriatic Sea in Caesar's military headquarters because Caesar had been planning a new campaign to the east. He comes back to Italy and Rome to claim his inheritance. And even though he's only 18, he is firing on full cylinders. Mm -hmm. He is ready to go. And within a few months, he buys a few legions onto his side by offering them what the conspirators had failed to do. He offered them a raise. And they're now willing to follow the young man who now calls himself Julius Caesar. So although adopted, he really was his father's son. He really was his father's son, yes. You touched on it earlier about the riot that ensued during the funeral, and there is where we get a snapshot of one of the women who we don't know a lot about. One of the players in that riot, of course, is Fulvia, and that's a great way to pivot into another area of the death of Caesar that I think is one of the book's many strengths, is it brings a lot of the women to the forefront who although maybe not necessarily involved with the conspiracy and the assassination, but are major players in the political landscape of Rome at this time. Fulvia, of course, is right at the top of the list. Yes, one of the things I enjoyed in writing The Death of Caesar was looking into the careers of a number of elite women who were remarkably prominent in Roman politics at the time. And one of them was Antony's wife, Fulvia. Fulvia was a political wife, if there ever was one. In fact, she was a political widow. She had been married to two prominent politicians before Antony, and her first husband was a man named Clodius, who was a real demagogue. He stirred up the people, and he's killed 
at the behest of one of his political opponents in a brawl on the Appian Way eight years before the assassination of Julius Caesar. In fact, he's killed by a group of gladiators. When his body is brought back to Rome, he has a funeral that devolves into a riot, and the rioters burn down the Senate House. Fulvia is there. She knows what's going on, and it's hard to imagine that she doesn't talk to Antony about it when they're planning Caesar's funeral. I like to think that she's the brains behind Caesar's funeral and the actions that incited the crowd to riot. We know that later on, it's a sign of how powerful a woman she is, that she actually dons military garb and she plays a role in recruiting soldiers to fight for her husband against his political opponents. And the soldiers on the other side are so impressed by this that they write her name with obscene insults about her on their sling bullets. Those bullets actually survive and we have them. Kind of an interesting historical document. Yeah, very, very strange. So I guess if you're a soldier and you're being recruited by a, a woman who's donning the armor, that's a cause you could probably get behind in yeah. those days. Yes, I think that Fulvia caught a very unusual figure as a woman in armor. And I think that a lot of soldiers were impressed. So it was a good recruiting tactic. Yeah. And you think two previous husbands falling victim, I guess she stuck with it. The farm life maybe never entertained her. No. Fulvia was clearly someone who enjoyed the political action. She liked being on the edge of the scene and indeed in the scene. Another famous female name that comes to light in the death of Caesar is Cleopatra, who uh, your research reveals was nearby on the actual day. Yes. One of the things that I learned in writing the death of Caesar was that Cleopatra was in Rome on the day of Caesar's assassination. That's not in Shakespeare. Cleopatra was the queen of Egypt, and she was one of Caesar's many mistresses. They'd had an affair, and she had born an illegitimate son who she claimed was Caesar's son. He never denied it. He was named Ptolemy XV, going to be the king of Egypt, but he had a nickname that everybody knew him by, and that is Caesarion, which means little Caesar. In the winter of 44 BC, Cleopatra was in Rome. Caesar had ensconced her in his villa across the Tiber, and she was living there and must have been horrified when she got the news that her lover had been murdered. She was controversial. A lot of the senators resented her presence, and they saw the fact that Caesar, who, by the way, was married to a Roman woman at the time, they saw the fact that he would have an affair with a foreign queen as yet another sign that he really wanted to be a king. So this was very public knowledge. Very public knowledge. His affair was very public knowledge. And this was something that was frowned upon because of the political stature or because Caesar himself was actually married to someone else? Oh, no, the Romans were Latins, and they didn't frown upon <laughs> the fact that he was having an affair. They frowned about, upon the fact that he was having an affair with a foreign queen mm. and that she'd born his son and that clearly she was very important to him given where she was currently located. So how would someone like Cleopatra, who was on dangerous turf at the time, how would someone of that stature make an exit plan? Well, Cleopatra is nothing if not nimble, and we can be sure that she had an exit plan from Rome. The interesting thing is that she does not flee right after the assassination. She sticks around for a month, and you might wonder, given the security situation, why did she do that? And I think the answer is she was not just Caesar's bereaved mistress. She was also the queen of an independent country. 
and a country whose future depended on relations with Rome. She wanted to see who was going to be in charge of Rome. And as queen, she needed to stick around to make sure that she had open channels and good relations with whoever would be in charge of Rome. And also, quite frankly, to politic for her cause and perhaps to put in a good word for the person who she thought would be most favorable to her and her country's interests. After several weeks, she finally leaves and goes back to Egypt, but does not cease to be involved in Roman politics. Far from it. So even though this murderous plot has happened to her lover and the father of her child, she sticks around for political reasons. Absolutely. For political reasons, and she's also looking towards the future. As we know, Cleopatra eventually becomes the lover of another Roman, and she has an even more famous affair, the famous affair of Antony and Cleopatra. And perhaps already after the death of Caesar, she was eyeing Antony and thinking, hmm, I want to keep him in my mental Rolodex, as it were. <laughs> keep my eyes on him. Yes. Yeah. So when you're writing a book like The Death of Caesar that is taking one of those events that we all learn about and are reminded of throughout our education and that we get so many bits and pieces of throughout our lives, whether it's Shakespeare, whether it's pop culture, whether it's movies on TMC, what is it like going back and doing the real research to really debunk a lot of these popular myths and things we've come to associate with such a historical event that are just wrong. Well, doing the research for the death of Caesar was a lot of work, of course, but it was downright fun. There's something fun about debunking myths. Also, as a historian, one of the things I've learned over the years is that even when you come to famous events, there are always new perspectives. And there are always details that have been overlooked, particularly with the death of Caesar, especially in the English-speaking world, because Shakespeare has left such a stamp upon the event. We start out with the assumption that, well, Shakespeare basically got it right, and maybe we can trim it around the edges or add a detail or two. But if you see there are ways to take a completely different perspective and a different approach to it, that makes it even more exciting. And that, to me, that was part of the excitement about it, seeing that there's just a different way to look at the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And did the research for the death of Caesar take you over to Rome and the surrounding areas? And I suppose some of the other books that take place in that part of the world, does it lead to some research trips as well? Well, you know, one of the things about being a historian of ancient Greece and Rome is that you have to do hardship duty in the Mediterranean. <laughs> and in this case, I got I was lucky enough to get to spend six months in Rome. We salute your service. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> I had to be at the American Academy of Rome, living that austere scholarly life in the eternal city. What can I say? <laughs> it was enormous fun. Really yes. exciting. Yes. That's, uh, we're, we're all quite envious, but uh, you're providing a, a great service as well. So again, with the death of Caesar, a lot of the events we just described, especially politically, ring a little true today. So as someone who is studying history but living in the, the present day of 2015, do you see a lot of alarming parallels? I do see some parallels to our world today in the world of the death of Caesar. To me, the biggest parallel is that every society is faced with the challenge of change. Nothing stands still historically. In the case of Caesar's Rome, the Roman elite had to find some way to open the doors to the 40 million people of the Roman Empire, people they had largely left out, and in particular to the ruling classes of the provinces of the empire. 
In our own day, we're faced with the challenges of globalization and global competition, and also with the challenges and opportunity of immigration, whether legal or illegal. We have to decide how we're going to face those challenges and how we're going to evolve and change as a society, keeping what's good about our traditions, but accepting change when we need to. I think that's a challenge that every society has, and Caesar's Rome didn't do it very well. They only solved these problems through enormous violence and a series of civil wars, and in the end they had to give up a great deal of the liberties that they had gotten used to and give up their republic and accept a monarchy instead. So there's a cautionary tale here in the case of Caesar. We don't want to do things that way. We want to deal with change more openly, more systematically, more constitutionally and by peaceful rather than violent means. So the death of Caesar does give us a lot to think about and a lot of food for thought in such a politically charged atmosphere as today. But at the same time, it's as well plotted and as well constructed as some of the best suspense and thriller novels out there. And it really does take that classic example from history that we learned from the earliest days of elementary school and really recontextualizes it for today and uh, really debunks some of the myths. Although friends, Romans, countrymen, uh, if we get that wrong, that's not the worst thing. So Barry, I, I thank you very much for joining us today and we look forward to the next one. Thanks, Stephen. It's been great to be here. Thanks very much. And to learn more about the death of Caesar and Barry's previous books, please visit barrystrauss.com and connect with him on Twitter at Barry Strauss. Again, the book is The Death of Caesar, the story of history's most famous assassination. As always, you can find the link to purchase the book at historyauthor.com, and we hope you will click through there. Every time you do, we get a few gold aureus. Thank you again to Barry Strauss and Stephen Bedford for sharing their conversation with us and for making the very old story of Caesar's assassination new again. After you visit Barry Strauss online and follow him on Twitter, don't forget to check out our Classical Wisdom Wednesdays feature for even more on the days of the Roman Empire. It's ancient wisdom for midweek morning minds. Every Wednesday before your first cup of coffee from the fine folks at Classical Wisdom Weekly. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and our interview on Twitter at History Dean or at Facebook.com slash History Author. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next time for another trip into the past here on iHeartRadio or wherever you're listening. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening. And beware the Ides of March. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.